Hello, and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds, where we explore the intersection between theater and tabletop role-playing games. I'm Percy, and I'm here today with Matt Minichino, a playwright and the mind behind our current campaign, a game of 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons entitled Of Mice and Monsters. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Uh, nice to be here. Um, so to start, I would love uh, if you just introduce yourself, anything about your background, any theater experience, tabletop experience, anything you want to talk about? Yeah, uh, it's a it's an interesting question because um, my tabletop experience is sort of in like two quadrants of life, which was that I, like so many kids growing up in the like late 90s, early 2000s, kind of got sucked into the thriving nerd culture at the time and played a little like, I think it was probably third edition or 3.5. Um, and I think I, my, I remember like making my mom get me the books and they had those very demonic looking covers. Um, I don't know if you remember the third edition covers, but they were like, they had like hideous eyes and things on them. They looked tr truly, uh, truly satanic. Um, and making my mom like drop 30 bucks on them at our local hobby store was always kind of a struggle. But I think I only did that for a little while and then really fell off the map with any kind of gaming for years and years, or really more than a decade, maybe like 15 years, um, until about two years ago when people started kind of sucking me back into it, uh, both into some specific games with friends, but also into the culture of it in general, which I didn't realize had changed so much for the better, in my opinion, which was that when I was growing up, I think one of the things that I, I, I enjoyed being able to sort of like have that little community, but at the same time found that it was a very exclusive community from my perspective and that my friend group at the time was already uh, a little more diverse in terms of uh, gender and racial identity than the kind of like group of young white men who were mostly asking me to play those games. And so I think I, I would do it occasionally and then be like, well, you know, yeah, but I have a lot of other friends who don't really feel comfortable in, in this room. So I think I'm going to go do something else. Uh, and then returning to it in like 2016, 2017 and realizing, oh, it's really, it's really broadened its horizons tremendously. And now is becoming this wonderful kind of unifying platform for uh, people all across all, a, a broad range of, of spectra was like, oh, great, this is fun and cool and for everyone again. And then that just rapidly blended with, and I'm going to artfully segue into my other career as a theater artist, <laughs> because my, uh, I'm great at segues. My main uh, kind of vocation and work that I do is as a playwright, uh, which I've been doing for over 10 years now. And I moved to New York City to pursue that profession. It's been going pretty well. I've been writing plays uh, and adaptations of classics and teaching theater and uh, also occasionally producing acting or directing theater uh, in the city and uh, occasionally elsewhere for most of that time, uh, as well as doing a lot of work with other classics like Shakespeare. I have a frequent uh, job during the summers working with the American Shakespeare Center, which is a place that I very highly recommend and taught me a lot of uh, my relationship with storytelling. And uh, a lot of the theater that I do is also kind of vaguely in the realm of the fantastic. Anyway, I was always very drawn towards theater that prioritizes world building, which I think is really where tabletop gaming, especially Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and theater intersect, which is that desire to 
create a an exciting, magical, and at least uh, slightly original world in which uh, the characters can sort of treat it as a playground. Uh, the characters or the players uh, or the actors, whatever you might want to sort of call them in that context. So I guess that's kind of a rough primer on my relationship with those two things. Cool. Thank you. I have two follow-up questions to that. You talked about um, how ASC has sort of shaped your relationship with storytelling. Would you describe that relationship as like world building focused and, and, you know, kind of big imaginative fantastical things as opposed to, yeah, just more detail about what that relationship is would be cool. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head, which is um, I like all forms of storytelling and theater. And I think that it's sort of like a, a very much a pick your poison thing for both uh, audiences and participants in the art form um, and very case by case. But I think the thing that was always attractive to me was, was the larger than life. Um, and I think one of the things I liked about theater in particular uh, and the reason why I was drawn towards uh, uh, plays that had a certain impossibility to them, which is one of my favorite sort of things to talk about in theater is the idea of the impossible play, like the play with impossible stage directions or things where even if you had a million dollar budget, you still couldn't really do it. It's like you could maybe gesture at it with a million dollars, but you couldn't really do it. But the idea that unlike in a movie where you, you can sort of fake it with CGI or something, or in a book where it's all on the page, uh, so you can do anything you want because it's all kind of there in your head. There's this kind of contract between everyone who is in the room in that ephemeral moment in a play to say, this is real and we're just all gonna like exist in this real but completely unfathomable world together. It always brings me back to those uh, first lines of Shakespeare's Henry V where he's saying, this, I know it's just a wooden stage in front of you, but if we all think of it as being a huge battlefield with a thousand knights on it, then it is. And you can imagine all of those things here happening. And to me, D&D very much is the same contract, which is somehow I, the DM, or I, the player, have to get you, the player, or you, the DM, in the same like imaginary headspace uh, as me. And I'm just much more drawn to the idea of that headspace being one that's filled with kind of fantastical, epic, larger-than-life images that allow us to pursue small, intimate moments in a kind of huge and mythic way, rather than something like a kitchen sink drama. I, I would be very curious, I guess, to see like a D&D game where like it was all set in someone's living room and it was all on a couch, like a lot of American plays of the last 10 years. But I, I don't think it would entertain me quite as much as doing the thing that we're doing right now. That sounds amazing, though. I kind of want to try that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably worth a, worth a social experiment. Um, and would you say as a, as a playwright, do you err on the side of like looser or stricter in terms of allowing directors and actors to to make choices within sort of the framework of what you've built or are you do you tend to be more prescriptive in terms of like this is what I'm imagining I love that question because it's a challenging one that I sort of hate to answer because I think that I like to think that I am incredibly unrestrictive um I think in fact some of my more like imaginative plays are a little bit prescriptive uh there's always a lot of stage directions and the stage directions always are sort of like my voice in the play but they'll always be a little conversational like they won't be like this person does this 
they'll say like, maybe this person does this in this moment, or maybe not, which in my mind is very broad and unlimited, but I think it always sort of weirdly makes actors feel like because they're having a conversation with the writer through the text, that they actually have to listen more stringently to what the writer is saying. So it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. As a writer in the room during rehearsals and stuff like that, I've always, I always want to discover a story through everyone who is telling it. And pretentious or sort of abstract as it may be to say, I like to think of the play as being as its own entity and everybody who is involved in it is as being a, a part of that entity, none of whom take a particular priority over anybody else. So when, I'm, when I've written the play and the text is now in the mouths of the actors and the director and the designer and even the, you know, the stage manager and the crew and everybody is contributing, then I'm no longer the one who is the, the prime storyteller. So if somebody else is going to make a decision that's going to teach me how, the, the, a way to make the play better, or teach me about the story, then that person is having that moment. And that is the moment that takes priority, not me saying, oh, well, that's cool, but uh, what I intended was this. Uh, I'm a big proponent of death of the author, even while I am the author. <laughs> and how do you think that relates to, because you're a dungeon master, you know, you you do this, you know, this you play a game where... Um, there's this person who is author and and god and and referee and all of these things but at the same time it's about the player's experience so how do you think those two sort of worlds connect with each other yeah i think they they dovetail uh, perfectly because i have pretty much the same experience as a as a dm where like i've put a lot of thought into this sort of crafted world but then if you have a moment where a player like realizes something or gives everyone something sort of like hands everyone either an emotional uh, or, or a sort of tangible or just a momentary or a comical gift in the moment. It is, I think, irresponsible of you as a DM to not let the game kind of curl around that moment and be like, let's all acknowledge that that was a moment that helped us move forward in the story, tell the story, solve this story. And, having that kind of improvisatory ability, I think is key, uh, uh, very much that, that yes and thing. But it's also uh, like, it, I think it's the most challenging joy of the game, which is having that moment of, of oh, potentially the whole, my whole I, uh, plot that I've like rigorously constructed and all of these numbers and all of these things probably has to change in a dime because that one thing was so good. <laughs> That one thing that one player did that one time just completely. And it's the same as having a very good dramaturg on a play when sometimes you're, you've written the whole draft and then the dramaturg comes in and says, yeah, but what if you tried this in scene two? And you're like, that's, that's it, though. I hate you, but that's it. Like, you complete, like the play has to change completely, but you definitely have improved it for all of us. And that is the kind of work that elevates the story above any one player or the constructor or the author. Yeah. Pivoting kind of more to like strict D and D tabletopy stuff. I'm sort of, I'm curious about in general um, as a DM, when you're running a campaign or an adventure, how much story do you go in with? Um, how much do you decide in advance? Okay. This is what is going to happen. Yeah. Given that everybody can change everything. Uh, in a second. I had a, a, I have a, a player in my current longest running campaign who, 
uh, is also a dear friend and DM'd a campaign that I was in that ended last year. And I th- it is about to, we're about to start Zoom uh, doing uh, Curse of Strahd, the very famous module with him, uh, which I have not visited since I was maybe 13. He had a really lovely phrase that he used to describe the kind of idealized game, which I am interested in. And I, I think I mostly agree with which is a lot of D&D players are familiar with the idea of the sandbox versus the railroad. Uh, the w- railroad being when you are sort of forcing, as a DM, your players into a, a very specific and kind of narrow course of events. Uh, you're, you're really kind of keeping them from going off-road. And the sandbox being complete, uh, unlimited potential. The players can do anything, and the DM just kind of has to run with it. And my friend, James Swanson, uh, who I've been talking about, he said, like, there's this kind of wonderful, if you can figure out how to structure a game like an hourglass, it's really wonderful, with kind of an open-ended section and then that little narrow space in the middle where the sand has to grip through and then another open section. So it's like occasionally you are going to funnel your players into those tiny little glass tubes where there really isn't any room for them to do anything in those moments that you need to happen. But if possible, as much of the other stuff that can, that can feel open is great. And I, I think I'm, I generally ascribe to that as well. Uh, in terms of building the story in advance, which is I always write a ton. You know, my my few campaigns that I'm sort of working on have reams and reams of material just as backup written. And the story is very much one where I know, I feel like I know a lot of the elements of it, if not all of them, while still being uh, able to discover more. But try to make it so that within that story, plot points can happen in any way and at any time. So it's like, well, there's a plot point of the characters are probably going to encounter this person in a specific way, but what they have to do in the encounter is still up to them and could result in these 26 side paths. You know, they could have a big fight, but they could also negotiate, they could also join them, etc. And anything they do changes the various contingency plans uh, that I have. I also wanted to mention, um, this is something that I've, uh, I, I haven't yet actually run any game out of a book, like I haven't run any modules. And I think that's maybe part of my like selfish God complex as a playwright, which is I do like to be able to have some kind of narrative control rather than being like, well, this is, this is the book. This is what happens in the book. So we have to do this. But that has given me a lot of joyful, um, expressivity to be able to build the story around the players a lot, which is something that I love to do. And it is something that is a little hard to do if you're writing the book, which I'm sure which we'll get to in a moment, uh, but is a real delight when you get to say the villains of the story, the plot points of the story, the places that the characters go are highly influenced by the things that they told you in session zero. You know, where they're like, well, my my little village, my family, you know, my, my little halfling wager's village is here, but he has like a weird relationship with his parents or something, but they still love each other or something like that. And you're like, great, I'm going to make sure that they have to go by that village at one point and they can make the decision about whether they go and have a weird, like, fun sort of dramedy kind of reunion with the parents or something. And like, they don't have to take that option. 
of making that kind of fun thing available and also feel like it's entrenched in the story in some way is really fun for me. And sort of that's a great, I think, opportunity to pivot to our our specific campaign, because when you the hourglass, I think, is brilliant. And I think the campaign that we're playing uh, that you wrote is very much structured that way. Uh, no spoilers, but yeah, I definitely, I definitely see it. I think one thing that is interesting to me, um, given that you say you've never run like a, a Wizards of the Coast adventure, an adventure that someone else has has written, but the adventure that we're running does make a lot of reference to various like Forgotten Realms settings. <laughs> do you find yourself um, tending to use that sort of body of lore, or do you ever sort of expand into okay, this is my own, you know, world or my own realm? I. Uh have definitely not gotten into the like uh matt mercer world of like full-on world creation and i think i can i can pinpoint pretty much exactly why that is and it's because i frequently am playing with uh at least to start fairly new players and i think it's just has been easier from my perspective thus far to not overwhelm them with a world that exists primarily in my mind because the thing about being able to use the vast and very comprehensive Wizards of the Coast lore for sort of Faerun and all of that stuff means that there's going to always be a reference point if they're confused by something. Or I can say, like, I don't actually know the answer to this, but, like, you, you can find it because it all exists on a wiki somewhere. And there is a kind of very clear sense of what the options are. I've also just found it's fun. Like I, you know, I was, as I said, I was a child of the the nineties. So like, I feel like we all came of age in that beautiful moment when the Lord of the Wings movies came out. Um, and that sort of defined our realization that like the, the fantasy was this beautiful thing that could, could sort of comment on and underscore our real emotional, social and political lives while at the same time being something to disappear into. And I actually, I think the Wizards of the Coast world does a great job of kind of uh, uh, brimming you full of potential points and uh, vectors of interest and all of this stuff. So, so far it has been, all of the campaigns I want are set in that world and often kind of uh, loop-de-loop around things that already exist. Um, and especially for the few players of mine who are experienced uh, and have played, you know, uh, whatever adventures, Curse of Strahd, Out of the Abyss, Storm King's Thunder, all of these other things which I've played or know of, uh, it can be really fun to reward the fact that they are long-term players by kind of dropping in those little uh, Easter eggs and saying, oh, here's a character from like the very established Dungeons & Dragons lore who is going to get mentioned in this conversation that you're having in a tavern. And probably nobody else of the players is going gonna, is gonna to give a damn about that name they're not they're going to be like drizzt dorn who's that um i don't know who that is um and you don't have to predicate everybody's enjoyment on the knowledge of that but you can kind of give them little like yes it is all part of one incredibly vast world and there's an excitement i think to that it's like kind of like the mcu it's like everything is everything is orbiting around everything else like this kind of solar system of narrative so yeah it's, it's all been and including the campaign that you uh, ran, are all kind of living in that universe. Uh, and I found that to be not restrictive, but in fact very liberating uh, to allow 
the possibility of a lot of different genres and a lot of different plots and a lot of different characters. Speaking of genres, um, so sort of the the generative point um, that we started our campaign with, because it wasn't necessarily built entirely around the characters, but you did send everybody sort of a what style of campaign is interesting to you. And I was curious about how you sort of took those responses and, and turned them into the, the finished product that we that we ran. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember exactly all of the options that I said. I could probably look at an email right now as we're having this conversation. Uh, but I remember, I, I think a, I listed a bunch of, they, they weren't even hyper-specific genres. They were kind of like weird and malleable. Like one was like the, the genre of like a puzzle-solving game. Or, yeah, like a heist game. Uh, yeah, a heist game or, or like just a really plot-driven game, which isn't really a genre, but just the idea of like a game that is structured more around the like in-between character events and interrelationships. Uh, yeah, I, maybe I, genre is not the right word, but like play style. Right. Weirdly, I, I think genre is the right word. Uh, so you're definitely not wrong, but at the same time, it's like, what even is genre? It's, a, it's all a construct anyway. And I feel like a lot of people, when I emailed that, there, there was like a, a glut of people who said that they wanted something a little scary, which surprised me. But I was like, oh, okay, sure. Uh, and then a lot of people said kind of like adventure or, or puzzly stuff. We'll, uh, seeing how goofy your group is, I, I was, it was, it's really interesting that I think at the time, nobody said that they wanted a goofy campaign. And I think probably that helped because if you have a bunch of goofy players playing in like a horror setting, it's actually probably better. And like that, that tension is always going to be more fun. So I think that because of the way that people were leaning, it led to being like, well, I'll create a kind of like cozy, scary mystery. And uh, so it turned into, and again, no spoilers, this kind of like fun, weird dungeon crawl adventure that sort of turns a little bit, you know, goes a little bit south in terms of genre. You know, it, it turns from being like, oh, this is fine. You know, it's, a, it's sort of like an adventure with some, with some silly conundrums that we have to figure out and some like tense, heisty puzzles and then kind of turns into something a, a little more grave, though I uh, have yet to see exactly how those grave moments turned out. The game itself was weirdly based on a one-shot that I ran for a friend's birthday party earlier this year. And I realized after getting the genre selections from people that I could sort of like tease that out into something because I already had the framework. And that was the one, uh, some of the like puzzles and things that exist in the game as it is were ones that I came up with for that game, which made it a little easier to be like, well, I can reconstruct the, the plot and narrative and tone a little bit, but maybe still utilize some of these these encounters and these moments and maybe the specific structure of the kind of overarching dungeon, which is the main setting of the game. As a as a DM, do you tend to spend more time on these sort of puzzle type things, these very kind of technical encounters, or are you more invested in there are these sort of very open ended um, kind of intrigue uh, social encounters written in? that I think are, are interesting. Um, and I wondered if you had like a vision for how those, you know, are supposed to go or, or how you go about constructing those. Cause I think they are more complicated than they might seem on the surface. Yeah. Uh, the intrigue is, the, is my favorite. I think I spend a lot more time considering those possibilities that I do on puzzles also, because I think as a, as a 
player, I can sometimes get frustrated by puzzles, and I I feel like those moments are the are the things that can really work in a campaign. And and often when I throw puzzles at my players in the games I DM, they usually work pretty well. They require a slightly less fun level of flexibility for the DM. Whereas in an intrigue setting, like anything that the players come up with is going to be fun for you as a DM because you're going to be like, well, that's not what I expected at all, but I can run with that. In a puzzle, if the players are shooting you a wrong answer, it's harder to be like, oh, okay, well, I'll sort of, but I'll, I guess I'll fudge it so that they can not be stuck and frustrated. But then if it works, they feel great. But you just never, you truly never know if it is. Like I've thrown puzzles at my players where like they were just so delighted when they figured it out. It took them just the right amount of time, you know, like just the right amount of time to be tense, like because they thought they weren't going to make it. And there was a kind of like, there was some sort of timer on it that was making things high risk, but then they just got it. But then I've also thrown ones at them where like they just don't get it. And I throw a bunch of hints and you're like, well, this is not, now it's just boring for like 10 minutes. Um, so I definitely would say I spend less time on those and, and, and I'll just go through and be like, well, this will be fun. And hopefully there's a couple of ways the party will be able to enjoy it and the players will enjoy it. Uh, but I think the real meat is if you're going to put like a lot of those kind of you need a solution moments in the game, still make them dependent on player creativity, I guess. Um, don't be like, I hope you're a good riddle solver because if you're not, you're screwed. It's more like, no, well, there's like, there's a lot of ways you could figure this out through brute force, through being clever, through experimentation that I think also uh, uh, parallels with the way the more fun I think that I have with those intrigue moment moments and how those are designed, which is in this situation, I want there to be a lot of different options available to you. You know, I want the player to be able to say, we're going to fight them right now, or we're going to negotiate, or we're going to persuade them, or we're going to seduce them, or we're going to hide from them, or whatever. And all of those options are going to create a, a new path. And as a DM, I try to think of all of the possibilities, but very, very, I mean, you can't, like you truly can't. Like you'll write down like five things on a page and be like, if the players do this, then X, if they do this, then Y. And somehow they're gonna pick Q and you like just didn't even know that Q was a possibility, but it is. And the, the art of it is being like, well, if I know the story well enough in my head, then it can change just on a hair trigger to accommodate Q in some way. When I write campaigns for myself to DM, I usually don't write a lot of the like, if X, then Y. Like I usually will just write what the encounter is and then see what happens in the moment. I'll be like, they meet this character and this character gives them an ultimatum and it's probably going to end up sounding something like this when the character says that, but then you know, we'll see what they say. And I sort of know in my head the big options where it's like, well, if they accept the character's ultimatum, then X will happen. But like, that's the only thing that I am have written down. Everything else is like, they could do a million other things and I'll, I'll wing it. Yeah, that's actually a great sort of segue to a question that, because I have never as a DM written stuff for other people to run. And I can only, I mean, is that your experience as well? Have you only ever written for yourself? Uh, so far, yeah. Yeah. What is that like? How has this changed your process? 
it was a lot. Like I wrote, I wrote for you that campaign and then I think, or, or rather like I finished it and then I looked at it the next day and was like, oh, only I could DM this. <laughs> I like read it through and I was like, I wrote this for myself. Like somebody else doing it would not be able to figure it out at all. So I wrote like, I think probably three more, like almost double the links that I would write for any three or four sessions of my own stuff. Because in those, there's a lot of contingency stuff listed in notes. And there's a lot of kind of footnotes and citations to help me out with things. But it's also just not as comprehensive because I know in my mind how I will deal with the situation. So I don't have to say this character will maybe do X or maybe do Y and I don't have to. And I also have like my internal store of like, these are my kind of emergency NPCs who I'll just pull out of my hat if I need to. Or like, this is how I know the personalities of the different characters that they're going to meet. And I know I have like, I've read enough books and stuff that I sort of know my go-to descriptors as well. But, you know, my players in the campaigns I DM are probably really sick of hearing certain adjectives because I'll just like always describe a forest the same way or a wizard's tower the same way. But like it works and like you, you vary it up a little bit, but you know you don't have to write or I don't have to write in a campaign that I'm DMing. This is what the Goblin Fortress looks like. Because like in my head, I'm like, I've, I've got a, I've got like a little compendium of Goblin Fortress descriptors. But when writing it for somebody else, uh, I really want to be able to give them a sense while not prescribing like this is exactly what the world looks like. Saying like, if you need some help, I want you to know that, you know, the tower looks like this. The laboratory looks like this. The, tr the creek is here in the forest as opposed to here. And there's the, the five animals who are drinking at the creek are a fox, an antelope, a deer, etc. And I think that level of comprehension, while at the comprehensiveness, I guess, actually is the word, while at the same time knowing that a even a comprehensive kind of list of all of the things available to you is still going to be kind of useless. <laughs> I think was real, like as I was writing, I was realizing happily the futility of the whole exercise where I was like, well, I feel like I can still spend another page saying these are the 25 things that could happen. But probably at the end of the day, whoever is DMing this module is going to be just as joyfully frustrated as I am with my own players. And it's going to encounter situations where no amount of me having written all the possibilities is actually going to help with anything. Yeah. I mean, as we found out in the first 10 minutes, you know, I have, I don't know what the innkeeper knows, and I have to figure, you know, you just have to figure, you just have to figure stuff out on the fly. But I think it, one thing that I really loved about the way that it was written is that there's a lot of points where you just say they figured this out using some creative means. And that as a DM is super helpful just to have the blessing of whoever wrote it to just reward player creativity because as a DM that's my favorite thing to do like there are moments where I'll give someone advantage on a roll because they used a spell slot to do something and even if it kind of functionally ends up being I roll to solve the puzzle or I roll to get a hint I still want to reward you know you used a resource or you found a way to help yourself that I hadn't thought of and I want to reward that but at the same time yeah it's hard I kind of liken it to the relationship kind of between like a playwright and a director where it's like mm. you both have some level of authorship in the final 
in the final product, the sort of ephemeral performance or whatever it is. But at the same time, you're coming from very different directions and your agendas are very different. Yeah. I think also that you and I, you mentioned this in, a, in an email, which is that you and I very much both subscribe to the rule of cool a little bit. Uh, I mean, a lot, I think, which is like, I also, the players in the campaigns that I run are from all across the map in terms of experience. You know, I have some who are like DMs in their own right and know the rule book way better than I do. And I'm always going to be able to be like, oh, Code of Cold, that does this many D6 damage just on the fly. Um, and then I have people who have just started playing for a game that I'm DMing. And you don't want to be like, I want to enforce the rules because I think the rules are the, are the thing that sort of keeps the stakes high. But at the same time, like if so-and-so says, what was it? This is a very lewd example. So I apologize to your listeners. I think they'll be okay. Particularly wonderful circumstance that happened like a couple months ago where I had dropped a bunch of players of mine. They were in a, they were in a mine searching for like an evil cult go figure classic D&D plot and they fell into this like small kingdom of little kobolds you know tiny sort of cave dwelling civilization who lived in the mountains and the kobolds were sort of like very distressed and uh, paranoid and fearful of outsiders but their king was like suffering from uh, what they considered to be like a grave disease um, and I allowed the players to figure out that he just was constipated and they didn't realize that. Uh, and I was like, in my mind, they were just going to, they were just going to tell him that. And like the kobolds were going to be like, Oh, you figured out what is wrong with our king. Um, and like, it was going to be fun. And there was going to be a, a stupid joke about poop in it. Um, always put in a joke about poop. But then one of the players who was completely new to the game, um, it was her first session. And she was like, I have this spell called Pass Without Trace, which allows, yeah, you know where I'm going with this, um, which allows a plus 10 to like stealth movement or something. And I was like, that's, I was like, do you understand how that spell works? And she was like, no, but can I cast it on the Kobold King so that his poop passes without trace? And I was like, absolutely, you can. <laughs> That's incredibly good. Um, and that I feel like that moment was like, of course, that's not logistically or technically how any of that is supposed to work. But like, it's such a beautiful moment of player creativity. And there's a purity to not of someone not like looking through the book to be like, what's the perfect thing for this moment, but just kind of seeing something on a page and being like, oh, I have this, right? Let me try this. And that is going to keep your players so active and, and happy, that kind of ability to, to say, if I come up with, if I can tell, again, it's all about that idea of the play being greater than the playwright or the actors or the director, which is like, if the story is going to get taken care of, in a beautiful way by somebody's idea, then that's always going to be uh, paramount. <laughs> so I just really needed to tell that story about Pass Without Trace because I think it's a great story. <laughs> I think less so the the poop story and more so the idea of of the play or the game being sort of greater than than the sum of the people playing. I think that's a lovely a lovely note for us to wrap up on. Um, is there anything else that you want to to say or or query before we before we wrap up? No, I'm I'm uh, super excited by all of this. I'm I'm 
uh, personally excited to see the the fruits of of your uh, labors, all everybody's labors, uh, and I'm also excited to tune in for the the next campaign. What are you playing next? So this season, uh, we're starting off with this uh, campaign of Fifth Edition Dungeons and Dragons. Next is a uh, a game of Apocalypse World, and then Ooh. we're wrapping up our season with a game of Paranoia, which is going to be super fun and exciting. We're trying to sort of span genres and and do very different systems. Thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for for writing a whole campaign for us. Um, It was my delight and pleasure. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Of Mice and Monsters, our Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition adventure was written by Matthew Minichino. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DNDramaNerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.